So, as I mentioned at the start of service, this is our first week of Lent. In the past, we've walked through specific Lent focuses each week, but this year we have chosen to step through it a little bit differently. Rather than encouraging you to specifically focus on things each week, we as a staff want you all to focus on one overarching theme, which is the idea that as we loosen our grip on created things in this world, we can rightly worship the creator first and allow created things to occupy a healthy place in our heart. Romans 1.15 says... So they worshiped and served the things of God that God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Our worship gets clogged up and stopped short when our focus is in the wrong place. We tend to worship things that our eyes easily lay on. We worship food. We worship money. We worship job promotions, celebrities, big houses. Or if you're like me, I feel my heart prone to worship, exciting experiences, once-in-a-lifetime opportunities, friendships, or the feeling that comes from being well-liked. Our brains tell us more, more, more. Our hearts want bigger and bigger. The present reality is rarely enough. Our hearts and minds are not easily satiated. Today, we're going to talk about the idea of work as we continue our series in Genesis. Work can continually drag us into one more hour, one more email, one more phone call, until we reach that job promotion or the job well done, and then we end up wanting more. Once we are on this treadmill of discontentment and dissatisfaction, it's hard to step off. But in God, there's a better hope, a hope of rest, joy, and comfort. Lent is a season where we can recenter and refocus our lives on the idea that we are created to worship the creator, not creation. Alicia Britt Nicole puts it this way. Lent in kind is less about well-mannered denials and more about the thinning of our lives in order to thicken our communion with God. The funny thing is we can't do this on our own. Because of our sin, our hearts and our brains will always stop short. We need something outside of ourselves to help, we, help us rightly order our worship. We need Jesus. We have to cry out to the Lord. We have to cry out over and over, Father, help us. Help me rightly order my worship. Help me see that you are the creator of all good things. Help me worship you rather than created things. So let's spend some time in prayer this morning over those things specifically. And I pray that that's our heart throughout this entire Lent season and our entire lives. So if you'll pray with me. God, We pray that you would help us rightly order our worship. God, help us to be dissatisfied with the things of this earth, Lord. Help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us to experience full rest, joy, and contentment in you and you alone, Lord. May we glorify with you with our lips and with our lives. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church. My name is Scott Hickox, and I'm part of the teaching team here at LCF, and it is good to be with you this morning. It's always an honor to get a chance to open God's Word uh, together. If you missed last week, I would just encourage you to go back and listen or, excuse me, watch uh, the sermon that Tim gave last week. He unpacked really the the beauty of being created in the image of God. And uh, it really, it's a foundational truth. Uh, it affects really how we live our lives. And it's also foundational for uh, our topic today. And so I just want to spend a little time and, 
and review, I want to make sure that we all sort of, if you were here or not, that we understand the big point that Tim made last week. And that is that, that everyone is created in the image of God. Everyone. Everyone is worthy of dignity and respect. Um, people are not worth more to God because of their name or their vocation or their bank account. And I think the temptation in our culture today is to, to think that, that successful people are, are more important to God um, than others. And again, Tim made the point really well, but it's so important that I want to just make sure uh, that we get it today. And so Tim often asked Corey to sort of create a, a chart or a, a slide that we could see to, to help drive home a point. And so I asked him to, to come up with one this morning. Again, the, the idea is that no one is more valuable to God because of their success. So just, uh, I just wanted you guys to, listen, Big 12 championships, national championships, BCS victories, none of that makes KU fans more valuable to God than anyone else, okay? So I, I want to be sure you're clear about that. Now, there's a couple other things that we could take from this, and I just want to leave the slide up for a minute. So um, one is that, that uh, Tim clearly didn't preview my outline or my slides. But two, uh, we're going to see if he really believes this, this idea of the image of God, uh, that we're all created the same, because if he lets me preach again, uh, then we'll know that he really does. Um, I'm joking to make a serious point here. I, I, I hope we can, Tim said, we can joke about sports. Um, but you know, like when we turn to things like politics, it seems like something crazy happens in people's brains. Um, Christians, they seem to completely forget Genesis 1 26 sometimes. I mean, if you read comments on social media, and I would not encourage you to do this, but, but if you were to read those, you would see people who, who profess to follow Jesus. And they get really nasty at times, rude and hateful and disrespectful. They seem to just ignore the reality of the image of God. And I believe that we, if, if we as Christians, if we would actually talk and live like we believe Genesis 1:26. That everyone is created in the image of God, equal of worthy, excuse me, equally worthy of dignity and respect. I believe it would transform relationships. I think it would transform our national discourse. And I actually think it might even transform the way the world views Jesus. And that would be a really good thing. And let me just add this. Tim talked about this last week as well, but I want to I hit that this as well. I've been talking about the image of God from our perspective of other people, right? And that is important. But some of us here today, and I I submit that all of us at one time or another need to be reminded of that truth ourselves. That you and me and everyone in this room is created in the image of God. No matter how you feel this morning, no matter what maybe somebody said to you or said about you, when God looks at you, He loves you, and he sees someone who is created in his image. Yes, yes, broken, and yes, maybe a little bit messy, but an image bearer of the king, and he welcomes you into his presence, not not because of anything that you have done, but solely on account of what Christ has done for you, and that's where we're going to end today. But I just want you to know that this morning, if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross, you are his forever. And that's the good news of the gospel, church. 
Well, our passage today is Genesis 1, 28 to 30. So if you want to open your Bibles or your devices and, and get there, we're actually going to read from verses 26 to 31. So we're going to get sort of the context before and then see where we're going afterwards. But maybe before we do that, I just want to ask a question. I want you to think with me for a second. Do you ever wonder why you do the things you do? I mean, do you ever maybe in some quiet moments sort of wonder if your life has meaning? See, I think one of the reasons that technology has such a grip on us is, is that it allows us to escape reality. Whether you're just surfing the internet or binging Netflix or scrolling your, your Twitter or Instagram feed, whatever it is, whether you do it consciously or, or unconsciously, I think we often use technology just to disassociate from reality. I think one of the reasons that that, that happens, one of the reasons it so easily sort of can entangle us or, or seduce us is because of this seeming futility that we have of our lives. At times we sense our lives are pointless, and so we'll sort of do anything we can just to escape that. Because the reality is, life is hard, right? It's hard. There's pain and there's heartache, there's trials and troubles in almost everything that we do. I mean, we work hard and we don't get the, the results that we want. We, we get an education, we don't get the job that we want. We pursue romantic relationships only to have our hearts broken. So we can often just feel like we're beating our heads against the wall, whether it's at work or at school or wherever. So do you ever wonder if your life has meaning at all? And this morning I have good news to offer you because our passage today tells us that God has, he says that our lives are inherently purposeful. He says there is intrinsic meaning to our existence that, that he actually created us to fulfill specific and wonderful purposes on earth. You may have heard someone say in the past that, that God has a wonderful plan for your life. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Maybe you wondered what it meant. I'm not sure they knew what it meant when they said it, but I can tell you that our passage today spells it out. So let's turn to Genesis 1. Again, we're going to start in verse 26 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we start. Father, thank you uh, just for the truth of your word. Thank you that in your, just in the beauty of your creation, Lord, that you made us in your image. And then you've charged us to, to, to carry that image uh, to the ends of the earth. And so, Lord, I pray today as we look at your word that you would speak. Uh, Lord, get me out of the way. And, and, and our prayer, my prayer, is that as we just sang, Lord, that Christ would be magnified, that he would be lifted up in all that we say and do here. So we pray your spirit would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, this passage here, just Genesis 1, 28 to 30, not everything I read, but just 28 to 30 is, is often called the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. Um, and one author says this. He says, if the image of God is every human's job title, then the cultural mandate is our job description. It's what God is calling us to do. God, God created us in his image, and now he says, go fill the earth with my image. It's our calling. And even though sin is going to enter the picture uh, in Genesis chapter 3, everything's going to be marred by it as a result of that, but the mandate remains the same. I think in our series, Tim has said we're only going to go, I think, up to Genesis chapter 12, so we're probably only going to get uh, to Noah. But if you continue to read through the Old Testament, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, all of them in one form or another heard this from God, to be blessed, to replenish the earth, and to subdue it. I mean, even to the nation of Israel, when they were in exile, God spoke to them through the prophet Jeremiah, and he said, have children, plant vineyards, and pray for the shalom of the city of, of your enemies. It's a recurring theme in Scripture, and we know that anytime something shows up multiple times in Scripture, it's, it's important, right? So this must be important to God, and so that's what we're going to spend some time talking about this morning. I think the first thing maybe to notice is just Look at how God begins. Look at verse 28. It simply says that he blessed them. His divine favor was, was on them. I mean, just think about the, the significance of that. The first words of God to humans was a word of blessing. The very first words to enter the ears of human beings was a blessing from God Almighty. It's amazing. The very first experience that humans had of God was Him giving them something that they hadn't earned or deserved. Before they'd done anything good or bad, God simply blesses them. And I think that's just a beautiful reminder of the God that we worship. That's who He is. Now with that blessing comes a command. He says, be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth and subdue it. So to bless is, is to bestow a gift, but not only that, but also a, a function. He says, be fruitful and, and multiply. And the obvious implication there, obviously, is marriage and, and sex. And we're not going to talk about that today, all right? Uh, that comes up again in chapter 2. And Tim has said that he would cover it then, and I was happy to oblige, all right? <laughs> While sex and reproduction are certainly part of what God is commanding here, I mean, there has to be more to it than that, Right? I mean, yes, he wants the human race to grow. He wants more image bearers, for sure. But there has to be more. I mean, think about it. Jesus never married or had kids. The Apostle Paul never married or had kids. So these verses must mean something more than just marriage and having children. When I think about uh, being fruitful and multiplying, I don't, I don't think about making babies. I actually think about Walt Enoch. Um, Walt was a friend and mentor of mine for, for 30 years, and he just passed away this past weekend at the age of 95. Um, I'm going to have the privilege of doing his funeral in, in just a couple of weeks. Um, I met him in St. Louis about 30 years ago, and by that time he'd already retired from his career in the, in the business world, and he had started a new career. He began working for FCA in his retirement. He led Bible studies around town. He always had four or five going at one time, and, and that's how I met him. He was leading a Bible study at the place where I, where I worked. See, as a result of his role at FCA, he was the chaplain for the, the baseball Cardinals. 
uh, for the football Cardinals when they were there, the, the Rams when they were there. So he did Bible studies for players and coaches. And then uh, if there was, uh, during the season, he would do chapel services on Sunday if they had, you know, games on those days. But I just remember the first time I met him, I could see there was something different about him. I mean, he had something that I, I wanted. He was just humble and, and wise. He was gentle but firm. And so one day after Bible study, I just went up and said, Walt, I mean, I'd, like to, I'd like more time with you. Would you be willing to spend some time one-on-one with me? And, and he agreed. Um, and again, I just I, I marvel at that because he's, he's leading Bible studies for professional athletes, for coaches, for CEOs around town. And I'm just a nobody, 20-year-old kid trying to figure out how to be a husband and a father. And he made time for me. So we started having lunch uh, every other week, and we did that for the next four years. And when Amy and I moved to to Kansas City in 97, we stayed in touch, and I would drive over uh, just to have lunch with him a couple times a year. And and then when we moved back there in 2012, he and I, uh, we we picked up again, this time having lunch every week. Uh, He was 85 at the time, still leading Bible studies around town. When I think of fruitfulness, I think of Walt. Because he was, he was always investing in other people. I mean, he invested in thousands of people in his retirement. I didn't know him in his, in his previous career before that, but knowing him like I did, I'm confident that he did the same thing then. I'm sure he was being fruitful and multiplying his life into others. See, I think that's exactly what God intended in his command to be fruitful and multiply. And here's the beautiful thing about it. Everyone can do this. You don't have to be married. You don't have to be of of childbearing age. You don't even have to lead Bible studies. There's there's no special skills required here. Jesus himself said, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. So church, we just abide in Jesus. Spend time with him. Become more like Jesus and you will bear fruit. I mean, Paul gives us another a way to know if we're bearing fruit. Right in, in Galatians 5, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Those are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, right? I mean, if you're ever wondering what your calling is, it starts here. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. Maybe it's a good place just to pause for a minute and just be honest with God for a second. Just ask yourself the question, am I being fruitful? Am I being Fruitful, am I investing my life in others? Am I multiplying my life in others? Or have we become so self-obsessed, so, so busy that we, we don't have time for other people? I mean, if you're ever sort of wondering if your life has purpose and meaning, it, it might be because you're not being fruitful. Because I can tell you, as you do that, you find purpose and meaning in it. Well, God continues, he says, subdue the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on the planet. Um, That word subdue in the original language, it means to to make the earth useful for humans' benefit and enjoyment. To make it useful for human beings' benefit and enjoyment. See, the idea here is for Adam and Eve to to take their little family and make it into something more. Make it into a a society. I mean, this wasn't like the first episode of Survivor. God wasn't just putting them here in paradise and hoping they would eke out an existence for all eternity. That's not it. They started out tending the garden, but God had much bigger plans in store for them. Their dominion over the garden was to expand into dominion over the whole earth. 
by producing godly offspring and teaching them to work, Adam and Eve are going to subdue all of creation. And you see, this language of subduing, it it mirrors what, what God did in creation, turning chaos into order. That's what the word is. So just think about where we've been so far in the series. If you've been around here, we've been slowly uh, working our way through Genesis chapter 1. And, and what has God been doing? He's been creating, right? He's been, he's been working, bringing order out of chaos, forming and, and filling and, and exercising dominion over the earth. And then God creates us in His image. And He tells us then immediately to do the same, to work. He's put us on this work to reflect his image. That's our purpose. And I would submit that we do that in great measure through our work. And by work, I'm not just saying, I'm not talking just about your job, though it certainly does include your job, but it's more than that. I'm talking about all the ways that we bring order out of chaos. All the ways that we make the world more useful and enjoyable for others. See, that's why we call it the cultural mandate. God is mandating that humans are to create culture. Adam and Eve are going to produce children, and then those children are going to create families, and those families are going to band together in in cities and social networks. And those networks of human beings then are going to reflect all the aspects of human culture, language and, and art and music and food and philosophy and theology. I mean, it's no accident, really, that the ultimate biblical picture of the redeemed humanity, if you go to the end of the Bible and you look in the book of Revelation, the picture, the ultimate biblical picture of redeemed humanity is a city. It's a city. It reflects human culture in its most developed and complex forms. God's purpose, it started in a garden. But it's going to culminate in this great cultural center where there will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation, we're told. His image bearers were meant to exercise dominion over all creation, turning the entire creation into a showcase of the glory and the majesty and the beauty of God. And then we're to work, then we're to work it and care for it just as God would. Statistics say that the average person will spend over half their life uh, at work. The numbers are, are somewhere in excess of 90,000 hours that you'll spend at work in a lifetime. It's a lot. So it shouldn't surprise us that God has actually something to say about how we do that, right? And so for the remainder of our time, that's what we're going to do. I want us to try for the next 15 minutes or so just to think biblically about work. And to do that, uh, we need to address some common misconceptions about work. Uh, But maybe before we do that, just a few definitions. David Miller defines work like this. He says it's sustained exercise of strength and or skill that overcomes obstacles to produce or accomplish something his definition of work. Now, you can see by his definition, it's certainly broader than employment, right? It would include employment. Employed people get paid for doing that. But unpaid labor, whether it's preparing food or mowing the grass or caring for kids or helping refugees, that's work too. Tim Keller says work is using God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular flourish. Remember what I said about the word subdue uh, just a little bit earlier? It has the idea of making the earth useful for human beings' benefit and enjoyment. I think that's what Keller's getting at in his definition here. All right, so, so what are some of these common misconceptions that we have about work? 
The first one I would say is that the misconception is that work uh, is a curse. I think by and large, at least in the West, um, we have a pretty negative view of work. I mean, lots of people, you know the song, right? Lots of people are what? Working for the weekend, right? They're enduring work so that they can have time off and have vacation. People say work is a a four-letter word, and obviously it is, but that's not what they mean, right? They mean there's something wrong with it, that it's bad, or it's a curse. See, we need to remember that work is good because God called us to it. And think just for a minute, when, when did he give us this command? When did he call us to work? Remember where we are? We're in the first chapter of Genesis, right? This is before Genesis chapter 3 when the fall happens. There's no sin. There's no curse. But there's work. See, work is, is good. It's not something that we do because of sin. Rather, work is part of the goodness of God's original design for us as humans right from the beginning. Work along with the sun and the moon and the stars, along with the mountains and the trees and the animals and the plants. Everything that the Lord created, He looked on and He called it all good, and that is including work. We need to remember that. I mean, I don't know, have you ever wondered why God didn't create the whole world to look like, like Eden? Have you ever thought about that? I think it's because he wanted Adam and Eve to participate with him in ordering creation. Again, it's sort of interesting to think about, but God says at the end of the chapter that everything he made was was very good. Remember in verse 31, you're going to get there next week. Tim's going to talk about that. But he created everything and he said, it's very good. But that doesn't mean it was everything it could be or would be. It was all that God wanted to be at that moment. He didn't make any mistakes, okay? Okay. He didn't forget anything. He didn't didn't get tired. He made exactly what he intended to make. So why did God make a world that was very good and yet still in need of more filling and subduing? It wasn't because he needed us. Let's be clear about that. He didn't call us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion because he needed our help. He did it because he loves us. He wanted us to have the the privilege, the blessing of participating with him in it. I mean, think about that. The God who could speak anything into existence. He left some things undone. But he wanted to give us the privilege of joining him in that work. And I think when we begin to grasp that, the privilege that he has given to us, man, that begins to reduce discontentment in work. It begins to to sort of squash those feelings of of futility. God actually made us for this. Maybe one more thing to refute this idea that work is a curse. Work is also a worship. In chapter 2 of Genesis, we're going to get there a little bit later as well, but the story, we're sort of at 30,000 feet in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, it sort of zooms in on Adam in the garden. And we're told there that that Adam, excuse me, that God put Adam in the garden uh, to work it. Excuse me. And the word in the original language there for work is a word called abad. And it's the same word that is used throughout the Old Testament for worship. Now, I don't know how often you actually think about your work like that, but, but work is worship. I know that we know it's more than the few songs that we sing here on Sunday morning. Um, but 
I think you could argue that work for Adam and Eve was their primary expression of worship. We don't read anywhere about Adam grabbing a guitar and them sitting around a campfire and singing a few praise songs. Now, now maybe they sang. I don't know. We just don't, we don't read about it. But I would contend they worshiped God through their cultivating and keeping of the garden. They were worshiping God through their work. I think that's probably a good reminder for all of us. How we work is worship. Paul says in Colossians 3, he says, whatever you do, do it heartily as if you're doing it for the Lord rather than for men. Again, just a great reminder. I don't know if we think about that often enough. God, God is our ultimate boss. That's who we're working for. And as we work, it is worship to Him. So every day you go to work, it's an act of worship to the God who created you. And so what that means is that, yes, we should work hard. We should do it with integrity. We should do it with excellence because ultimately it's for God. We're worshiping Him with our work. Now, I think it's worth pausing here for a moment just to mention how we can sort of get this messed up in our brains. Because when we don't view work as worship, we can actually end up worshiping work. And sadly, we live in a culture that, that, that sort of rewards and celebrates uh, people who do. We can be, become tempted to think that our worth and our value comes from our work. It can become an idol to us. We, we can get our identity sort of tangled up in our work and it can, it can consume us and, and ultimately it can, it can destroy us. Um, you know, I lost another dear friend less than a year ago. <clears throat> We had a unique friendship. Uh, my friend Rob and I, uh, I've known him since childhood, and uh, just a dear friend. He was kind and generous to me. Few people uh, experienced him like I did, and that's just a sad, it's sad. Maybe no one else did. Um, he came to faith later in life, um, and I'm convinced that if he were here today, he, he would want you to know his story because it's, it's a tragic story. Um, he would want to tell it because he would tell it far better than I would, but... Um, He's a former executive at Walmart, and uh, he started there right out of college, and he sort of worked his way up very quickly. Um, he was a hard worker. As a kid, he, he saw his dad get a car repossessed, and he vowed that would never happen to him. And so he was a hard worker from a very early age, and so when he went to work to, at Walmart, he sort of embraced the culture of the time. He was the first to the office in the morning, the last to leave at night, and he was rewarded for that. He moved up the ladder quickly. He was one of just a handful of people who were selected to, to start Sam's Club back in the day. And if you met him at any point since that time, if you were around him about five or ten minutes, he would tell you that uh, because he was very proud of it. It was a part of who he was. Again, sadly, his identity was so wrapped up in it uh, that it literally destroyed him. Um, see, by all the world's standards, he was incredibly successful. He had position, he had power, he had lots of money. But last summer, I, I literally watched him die alone. Again, he came to faith later in life and he just was never able to reconcile uh, all the things from his past. He died with broken relationships with three ex-wives, broken relationships with all three of his daughters. And as the, the trustee of his estate, I'm just watching the impact of those broken relationships now, and it's, it's not pretty. Um, work is not made to be worshipped. Work is worship. It's good, and it's worship. Misconception number two is that uh, 
Some work is more valuable to God than others. I, there's, a, there's a common misconception, I think, particularly among uh, Christians, and that is that, that pastors and missionaries sort of do the important work, and the rest of us, we're just taking up space. We're, we're making a living. Um, because they talked about Jesus all the time to people, right? So God must deem their work as more valuable than mine. Now, for instance, I mean, it would be disingenuous for me to suggest that Tim doesn't have the opportunity to impact more people than I do week in and week out. He gets to talk to a thousand people every weekend about Jesus. That is true. But greater impact does not mean greater worth in God's eyes. You see, one of the reasons we know that is because work is more than evangelism. I mean, yes, God wants you to be a light in your workplace for the gospel, but that's not the only value of your work. I mean, again, think about where work was commanded. It's commanded here in Genesis 1, before there's anyone else to evangelize, before there's anyone to disciple, work is given. I think Genesis 1 is challenging us then to realize that work has value in and of itself as you and I simply reflect the image of God. I mean, think about Jesus for a moment. I mean, surely, surely the Son of God wasn't wasting 20 years of his life being a carpenter. I believe those years were a delight to his heavenly Father as Jesus obeyed Genesis 1. And I would submit his faithfulness during those years is what makes his sacrifice uh, sufficient for us later. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Or maybe think about the tax collectors. We, we studied Luke before we were in Hebrews. I don't expect you to remember this far back, but, but a group of tax collectors came up to Jesus, and they began to understand who he was, and they decided that they wanted to, to begin to follow him. And so the natural question is, Jesus, what, what do we do? Do you remember how Jesus responded? He said, well, just don't collect more than is due. You see, he didn't tell them to, to go to seminary and become a pastor. He told them to do their job honorably. Treat, treat people as image bearers. Don't take advantage of them. See, it's tempting to think that our work isn't important. You know, like if we're, if we're not in ministry, that somehow we're less than. Listen, <clears throat> as my wife can attest, I, I have had a lot of jobs in my life, okay? A lot of different jobs. And, and sometimes I, too, wrestled with this notion of... It, is this really count for something? I mean, I sold bug wash. I sold singing toilets for a season, okay? <laughs> I'm not kidding. Okay, I had reason to ask that question. But if we believe what the Bible says, even those jobs can bring God glory. See, the truth is, all of us are in full-time ministry. All of us. Some get paid for it, okay? Paul told the Corinthian church, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. See, he's telling them, and he, he's telling us that, that everything is spiritual. Everything. I mean, if everyone becomes a pastor, how are we going to eat? What, what are we going to drive? We need people to do all kinds of jobs for society to flourish. And none are more dignified than any other. Now, here's the caveat. 
We're talking about all God-honoring jobs. We can't include sinful jobs in this, okay? You cannot glorify God in the pornography industry, okay? You cannot glorify God in the sex trafficking industry. You can't glorify God if you're oppressing the marginalized or taking advantage of people. That's not what I'm talking about. But all God-honoring work is equally valuable to God. All of it. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor in the UK about 150 years ago, and he said this. He said, to the person who lives under God, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. So I want to be really clear about this. There is no secular, spiritual divide. Secular, sacred divide. It doesn't exist. God doesn't value some work as more honorable than others. God made everything. He he owns it all. And so everything we do is to Him. If we're His, it's all spiritual. It's all worthy of the same dignity from God. See, we're sort of just building on that truth we started that I stressed at at the beginning. And I'm not going to put the slide back up, okay? Um, But just as no child of God is more valuable to Him than any other, so no child of God's work is more valuable to Him than any other. Okay? Maybe one more story. <clears throat> As I was reflecting this week, I realized that I actually, I lost three men in the last 10 months that had a tremendous impact on my life. Um, <clears throat> and none of them more uh, than the last one. <sighs> Amy's dad, <clears throat> my father-in-law, he passed away. In July. And if anyone was an example of working unto the Lord, it was Gary. His career was not one that the world was going to celebrate. Um, no one's going to write a book about him, probably. They should. He's an amazing man. He told fascinating stories. Um, he was most always the smartest person in the room, but you would never know it because he wouldn't speak unless you ask. He was very content to let others uh, have the stage. He worked faithfully for the government for about 30 years. Um, I don't know exactly what he did, and I don't say that to suggest that he worked for the CIA. I don't think that's what it was. Um, I just really don't know because he didn't talk about it. You know, work was important to him, but it didn't define him. He worked for the Social Security Administration. He worked for Medicare, but I don't know all the details. It doesn't matter. But here's what I do know. I'm confident he never took a sick day when he wasn't sick. That He never treated anyone unkindly. And if the internet existed in his day, he would not have been surfing it during work hours. And when he retired, he continued to serve others as he had his whole life. He volunteered, he helped neighbors, he helped his family. And at his funeral, Amy and the grandkids gave fitting tributes. And they were a testimony to a life well-lived and a legacy that's going to endure for generations. See, too often I think we get sucked into this world, to the world's idea of success. And we, we want the big and the flashy and the success, successful and exciting jobs and lives. And I actually think what God celebrates is ordinary faithfulness. I got a front row seat to somebody who lived it. And I'm forever grateful. Gary just quietly and humbly, he lived this cultural mandate better than anyone I know. That's what God's calling us to. One more misconception. And that is that work saves us. Um, 
Now you're probably thinking, listen, Scott, you're talking to the church. We know, we know that our work can't save us. I, I believe that we know that. I guess I just want us to think honestly about, is that really the way we live? Because how else could we ever look down on another image bearer unless we thought we were superior to them in some way? Smarter, better job, more money, more moral. I mean, fill in the blank. I fear that we think something we do makes us better. See, we can so easily think that we are responsible for this this middle-class, comfortable lives that we live. I mean, I've been working since I was 13. I worked my way through college. I, I worked hard. I got the job. I earned what I have. Why can't those people get a job? I mean, you're probably more spiritual than me. You've never said that. I, I thought that before. I think it's why God was kind to, to send me to Haiti so many times, dozens of times, because I, I needed it. It would humble me every time. I would, I would come home, and, and the thought that would immediately come to mind was, what if I was born in Haiti? What if I was born an orphan in Haiti? It wouldn't matter how hard I worked. My life was going to look very different and be a lot more difficult. Church, we just have to admit there are things outside your control, things that you had nothing to do with that allowed you to be and do, to do and to be who you are. And we just need to be humble enough to admit that. And that's what the rest of this passage uh, tells us. We don't have time to dig in, but, but the rest of the passage says that God says, listen, I provided all this vegetation for you to eat. Vegetarians love verses 29 and 30. Um, He says, I provided all this for you. He says, work it, cultivate it. It's all for me. I think sometimes we forget that. Our work matters. He gave it to us as a gift, and He commanded us to walk in it. So we should work hard. We should work with integrity. We should work with excellence. But we got to be humble enough to recognize that our work does not merit us favor with God. It never has, and it never will. Our work cannot save us. But here's the good news. His work can, and it does. See, God knew from the very beginning that we would never fulfill this mandate, that we would fail over and over and over again. It's not just Adam's fault. We all have done the same. But in his great love for us, he made a way. And he promises it all the way in the beginning. Back in Genesis chapter 3, you're going to see that very soon. He sent a substitute. And we often talk about Jesus' work on the cross and how it saves us. Um, And it does. But the reason is because he spent 20 years doing Genesis 1 work perfectly. 20 years as a carpenter doing Genesis 1 work, he did it faithfully, diligently, perfectly. And that perfect obedience to Genesis 1 is part of the perfect life that makes him the perfect sacrifice for us. His perfect obedience to Genesis 1 is part of the perfect righteousness that gets imputed to us at salvation. See, the one who created us in his image, he took on our image so that he could save us. 
C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, the Son of God became a man so that men could become sons of God. And that's what Jesus did. His perfect work, his, his sinless life, his sacrificial death. He did what we could not do for ourselves. He lived the life that we should have lived. Died the death that we deserved. And then he rose victoriously from the grave, conquering sin and death and hell. We just think about it. The creator of the universe was born in a stable. The one with infinite riches grew up in poverty. The one worthy of all worship spent most of his adult life in obscurity as a carpenter. When his public ministry began, he was ignored by the religious people, betrayed by a friend, falsely accused by the authorities, mocked by soldiers, abandoned by friends, crucified by the Romans. But on the third day, he rose from the dead. And he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he is ruling and he is reigning and he is interceding for us continually. He's the one who saves us. He's the one worthy of our worship and our praise. He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. And one day when, when the work he has given us is complete, he will return in glory. And he'll wipe away every tear and he'll make all things new. He's worthy of our worship. Let's stand. We're going to sing, but let me just pray for us. Father, thank you that you have made a way. Lord, we couldn't do this on our own, and you sent Jesus, and we are grateful for him. Lord, thank you for the privilege of this calling that we get to, to participate with the work that you are doing, redeeming, renewing, restoring creation. Lord, we need the power of your spirit to do it the way that you would do it, so help us. We want to we bear your image appropriately to a world that's watching. And I pray you would help us to be fruitful people. Lord, help us just to abide in you so that we could bear much fruit. Again, not so that we get any recognition, not recognition, not so this church would get any recognition, but so that you would get glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat for just a moment. Uh, I want to I do a couple things here before we close. Uh, the first is in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are humble, those who hunger and thirst for one meaningful sports victory. If you're a Mizzou fan, all those zeros are just training you in righteousness. That's what it's doing. Scott. I'm kidding. Um, I want to I connect a couple of threads here. Uh, we started our service. Erica kind of took us through a little, uh, a brief reflection on Lent, which we're going to do each Sunday over the next few weeks. And she talked about uh, Lent being a time where we can thin our relationship to things in the world, so we can thicken our relationship with God. And then Scott laying out kind of a theology of work for us. And so how... How can you connect those two things if you're wanting to partake in the Lent season and maybe sort of tie in what we're doing here on Sunday mornings? When we think about Jesus not sinning, often what we think about is active sin. Well, Jesus never lied. Jesus never disobeyed his parents. Jesus never lusted after someone or had an adulterous relationship or something like that. 
But Jesus' sinlessness also would include every form of like passive kinds of sinning that we could do, which means in all of his time as a carpenter, Jesus never made a table into an item of worship. It's not just that he never took a bunch of cedar and crafted it into an idol. Jesus also in his heart never made, in all of that season of working as a carpenter, he never turned that into the ultimate thing of his worship. That would be sin. And as I was listening to Scott, I, I was thinking of my own job. I, in any given week, I can take a sermon and turn it into an idol. Like, hey, this sermon on this coming Sunday is gonna be the thing that like makes me right before God. It's gonna be the thing that gives me my identity. It's gonna be the thing that gives me attention and me worth and me value and all of that is sin. And, and so in trying to thin our relationship with the things of the world so that we might thicken our relationship with God, maybe one way for you to sort of put that into practice and into intentional reflection over the course of this week would be to say to yourself, in whatever sphere of life that you work in, finances, education, you might build things with your hands, uh, you might work on spreadsheets all day, you might raise children, you might be retired. However it is that you're engaged in taking the stuff of the earth and turning it into things so that humanity can flourish, you might need to thin out how important you think that thing is or what worth it gives to you so that you can worship God with what you create in this world rather than be worshiped by what you create in this world. That would be a way for you to kind of pull together the strings of this morning and like intentionally engage in the Lenten season as we think about work over the course of the next week. Um, the other thing I wanna do, uh, that was just free. That's like a bonus thing for you. You didn't ask for it. Um, the other thing I wanna do is, we've had a lot of shifting on our staff over the last, really the last six months or so. And uh, we sent an email out on Monday announcing that we hired a new assistant student pastor, which gets us to fully staffed for the first time in like 15 months. Um, yeah, you can applaud that. Um, I want to do two things. Number one, I want to clarify, what do people do around here at this point? Because a lot of people have shifted roles. And then I want to introduce to you our new assistant student pastor. And so uh, in the shifting of roles, Adam Kuntz, beard, tattoos. That's how you know, okay? Adam Kuntz, he is now our associate pastor of small groups and assimilation and discipleship. So if you're looking for ways to get more further connected within the life of our church in a small group, in a discipleship relationship, serving in some capacity, if you're trying to get connected with uh, some men's studies or women's studies, Adam is your, your guy. He was our student pastor. So when we moved him, we had a vacancy. Erica Thomason, who opened our service, she is now our student pastor. Um, she was in the assistant role. She has moved over into kind of like the student pastor role. And that meant now we needed an assistant student pastor. And so on Sunday night last week, we announced to parents and students, and then we sent it out in an email on Monday that Isaiah Alvarez is our new assistant student pastor. Woo! You gotta come this way. Isaiah has been a part of our church for 10 years. 
Um, he has served within student ministry for the last eight. He was an intern for two different summers. He's been a D group leader with both middle school and high school students. And uh, effective a week ago, he's now our assistant student pastor. And uh, we're thrilled to have Isaiah in that role. He and Erica will be leading our student ministry. So if you're a parent of a middle school or a high school student and something goes wrong, don't send an email to Adam anymore. <laughs> send it to Erica or to Isaiah. And while he's just trying to get his feet underneath him, he'll give you some sort of response. Um, he'll forward it to Erica, exactly. Um, we're thrilled to have Isaiah here on our staff. I want to pray for him in a moment, but there's one other position I want to let you know about. Katie Wiley. Is Katie in here? She's out there. Um, there she is. Katie has been uh, in a role of connections coordinator here for uh, a couple of years, and that role comes alongside our associate pastor of small groups and discipleship and assimilation, Adam, in trying to just help people get connected. But we've sort of expanded what Katie is doing and so she is going to kind of take Adam's role of helping people get connected in discipleship relationships and ministry and into life relationally in our church and specifically put a focus on helping women do that specifically. So um, ladies, if you're looking specifically for how it is that you could be engaged in a discipleship relationship, um, engaged in serving, if you're looking for ways to get connected within the life of our church, Katie Wiley is... Uh, your point of contact, and she would love to be able to help you and serve you in that capacity. Um, so there's who does what around here now. If I didn't mention a staff member, they're doing the same thing they've been doing. So keep reaching out to them for the stuff you would have in the past. Um, I want to pray for Isaiah as he is joining us on staff, and then we'll go, if you would join me. God, thank you for this morning and, uh, Lord, the opportunity to gather together as a church family and to worship you. God, thank you for the reminder that the stuff that we do, uh, it matters. And it matters insofar as it glorifies and honors you, insofar as it points to you, insofar as it worships you, insofar as it helps humanity flourish. And God, I pray for Isaiah as he joins us on staff. Lord, would you give him just like a deep-seated conviction and passion for the truth that his relationship with you is the most important thing he has to offer us as a congregation. God, would you give him a passion to know you, to know your word, to know you in prayer. God, would you constantly set before him the beauty of Christ and the cross and the resurrection God, would you give him meaningful relationships with students? God, would you use him, work through him to display the beauty of Jesus to our middle school and our high school students? God, would the result of Isaiah being here on our staff be that all of us come to love Jesus more deeply? God, use Isaiah's gifts and talents and passions for your glory and for your good here in the life of our congregation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Um, Isaiah will be up here. If you've never had a chance to meet him and you uh, would, would like to do that, I would encourage you to come say hello. Just kind of welcome him to our staff. If you're new or visiting with us, you can go right out these back doors and meet some other members of our staff. We'd love to welcome you uh, and get to know you. Thanks for being here. We love you guys. Have a great day.